I'm Steve Fisher. Christina Baker Klein writes powerful novels that leap off the page and keep you riveted. That's why they're bestsellers and source material for at least three upcoming films and TV shows. She's my guest on this installment of Life Slices. Christina Baker Klein, welcome to Life Slices. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. To people who don't know you, how would you describe yourself? Well, my publisher likes to say that I am the number one New York Times bestselling author of eight novels. That is, that's the fast and most exciting way for them to position me. I would say I am a writer. I love to cook. I have three boys and they're unfortunately, all following their mother into the arts in one way or another. They're all in music, but having a blast. I'm not sure they'll ever make a living, but we hope they will. And and I live in New York City, but mostly these days on the coast of Maine. Who gets into the arts to make a living? That's Nobody. not what propels you into the arts at all. What inspired you to become a writer? I just saw this quote from Picasso. I've always said this, which is that all children grow up painting, singing. You know, you look at four-year-olds, three-year-olds, and they're writing stories, and they're dancing and singing and painting, and every child is creative. Um, Picasso's line was, every child is an artist. And most people outgrow that, and I never did. I, I think that's the easiest way to say it. But Part, there are a lot of reasons why I never did. My parents were professors. They encouraged creativity in the family. Uh, but also, I think being a novelist is a really specific thing. And one time I I was teaching at Fordham. I was a writer in residence there for four years. And we brought a novelist to campus. Uh, students were in the audience and other professors and I was riding back home with another professor, a nonfiction writer, an academic, and she turned to me and said, you know, I have to say, I think that fiction is really silly. She said, I don't really understand not only why anyone would write it, but why anyone wants to read it. I just don't understand the appeal at all. And I said to her, Elizabeth, that is actually really helpful to hear because I sort of tend to think of my own worldview as we do, as the worldview other people share, most people share. And it's, I understand that that makes, you're right. It's really bizarre. Why would anyone sit in a room and make up characters? It really doesn't seem logical. And I can also understand why you wouldn't want to read about made up characters. That too seems logical. And I think that conversation made me particularly aware that writing novels is a, an impulse that not everyone has. And um, I always had the impulse to, to write fiction. And in fact, given a choice between writing fiction and trying to write memoir, I feel much more drawn to fiction. And, and one more example, when I was writing my previous novel, A Piece of the World, which is a real life story about Andrew Wyatt, the painter, and the subject of his best-known work, Christina's World, many people asked me why I wasn't just writing a biography of Christina Olson because I was using the facts of her life. 
But what I like to say about writing fiction and what I truly believe about that book in particular is that I was trying to get under the skin of that woman. And there's no nonfiction book that can do that. She didn't leave behind diaries. She had no journals. She hadn't really confided in a lot of people. So I had the story of her life and, and there were quite a few stories, but I didn't have anything that told us how she felt about this very extreme life she led on the coast of Maine without any amenities. She was disabled. She, she had a tough life in a lot of ways, but she, by all accounts, loved her life. And so I wanted to show what that felt like. And you can't do that in nonfiction. So that's that's sort of another illustration. I was never into historical novels until recently. Then I found such a rich world in them. I mean, they've been great inspiration for a lot of fictional stories, but sometimes the truth is even more bizarre than the fiction. Yeah, that's one of the things I love about doing research for these novels that are set in the past, finding stories that or finding the true stories that you just can't believe happened. Like, for example, in The Exiles, my new novel, which is about the convict women sent on ships to Australia from England in the 19th century, they essentially populated Australia. Today, 20% of Australians are descended from convicts. In that story, I had not understood that Britain sent these women over essentially as breeders because they had dumped a whole bunch of male convicts there. And by 1803, Australia was nine to one men to women. So they had, they said, we don't want to just be a penal colony. We want to be an actual respectable colony. And so we have to populate. And so they swept women off the coasts of, uh, off the streets of, of, of England, Ireland, Scotland, and Wales under the flimsiest of pretenses just to get them over there and eventually to to breed with uh, ex-cons, essentially. It's a crazy story. It's an amazing story. How do you describe your books? Well, I wrote um, four novels that were contemporary, except with, you know, with some stuff in the past. And then with my novel Orphan Train, I took an entirely new path. And I, I, Actually, it's a 300-page book, and only 100 pages of that is set in the past, but people still call it a historical novel. And I had never wanted to write about the past. In fact, there's a writer named Katherine Harrison who's written many novels, and she wrote one about foot binding in like the, I don't know, 17th century. And I, I remember seeing the book in a bookstore and thinking, why in the world would she do that? That seems bizarre, and who would care? Why do I want to read a book? by Katherine Harrison set in the past. Um, like you, I didn't really, I didn't really read novels set in the past. And I will say also that to me, a lot of historical novels are too obsessed with the granular details, the research, and and less with language and story and development of characters, which is what I'm most interested in. So there was, there was a damning quote about Gore Vidal. I think maybe Norman Mailer or someone said this, but that, that no, no bow, no bauble, no button went unremarked in his historical fiction, that he was so obsessed with the details, he stuffed his novels full of everything he researched. And that kind of historical fiction, I'm not interested in. So I didn't ever think I was going to be doing this kind of writing. But when I stumbled on this family story for Orphan Train, my husband's grandfather was 
essentially on an orphan train. And his family never knew, nobody ever knew until we happened on a newspaper article that featured him and his siblings. And that opened up a whole world to me. And I realized nobody's really telling this story. I think I... I think I should tell this story. So that was how it started. I had never even heard of orphan trains before I read your book. Nobody, I mean, many, of course, there's a whole subculture who knew about it and had written about it. You know, when you start to research a subject, you learn how many people have been obsessed with some small corner of the universe that you never knew. But mainstream culture didn't know about the orphan trains. And so that was a great revelation. And that book really took off because I think because it was this little known piece of American history that a lot of people wanted to know more about. How long did it take you to to sell your first book? Gosh, I had some, I was sort of lucky early on or whatever. I came of age at a time. and, And by the way, this is This is not advice for people aspiring to write, but I do have advice for people aspiring to write about how to find an agent because this was sort of was a fluke. I was a junior in college and my I took a writing creative writing class with a woman who had just won the National Book Award and she was the world's worst teacher. She was imperious. She was suspicious. She pitted students against each other. She would waltz off the she would get off the train from New York City and waltz into class with her capes and sort of sit back. And anyway, she was awful as a teacher. But without my even knowledge, she gave my stories. I had, I was, had written a number of stories. I mean, in her class, I wrote like two or three stories. She gave them to her agency in New York City, and they signed me. And I was like 20. I hadn't written anything longer than a story. I think I'd barely finished a short story. She, by the way, she gave me an A minus. Like she didn't even give me an A. I, I don't quite know. It, she must have been like, well, she's not that good now, but I think she has potential. I don't even know because she barely spoke. But I ended up with this agent from a young age and I didn't really know what in the world I was doing. But this agent, who was, of course, a junior agent in that office, was like a fairy godmother. And because she made me feel like a writer way before I was a writer, she would call every three months. And she first of all, she got on a plane and came to see me in Maine in my family home. And that was exciting. And then she um, would call every three months and say, what are you thinking? Have you started thinking about a novel yet? And I was like, I'm 21. Um, And I know people do write novels at 21, but I was really not ready to do it. And I went off to grad school in English literature in England. And I worked at a literary magazine called called Granta as the assistant to uh, Bill Buford, who's a writer and became the New Yorker fiction editor. And I was whining to him about how I needed to be writing a novel. And he was like, oh, my God, you're 12 years old. Shut up. Just live. You need to live what you need to do. You don't need to write a novel right now. You don't have anything to say. So that was really helpful. And then I had I was a student loan kid. I was always grappy working my way through school and everything. So I had all these loans coming due if I finished grad school. So this agent called me. I remember standing at a payphone in England talking to her and she said, okay, here's what you got to do. You have to apply to MFA programs. You have to get a full scholarship and a teaching scholarship and so that you have a marketable profession. And you can't tell anyone you're working on a novel because MFA programs hate novels. They want short stories. So so I applied to two, I don't remember. I applied to like seven programs. I got, I got full scholarships at two, Michigan and UVA. 
And my boyfriend at the time was, we were trying to coordinate where to go and he got a job at a prep school in Washington. So that was what, how, how it happened. And so I wrote my first novel um, in this MFA program when I was pretending to write short stories and handing in old stories from college. This is when I really became a writer. At the end of those two years in the MFA program, I sent my, this new agent, I sent the agent the book that I'd finished. She, I remember another payphone called me and said, you know, this is good. This is good, but you need another hundred pages and you need to do all this stuff. And I was like, I'm not done. What do you mean? I have to remind. I was totally shocked. And that year after the program, I worked full-time in a wine shop for 40 hours a week. I, I started this editing, writing works, this editing service for like UVA. And I wrote that book around the margins and I finished it. And I think she submitted it to like eight publishers or 10. And finally, one of them said, a really great one actually said, well, we're interested. We'll have lunch. So I came to lunch and they were like, "Ah, yes, we like it, but this needs to happen and that needs to happen. So go away and do all this stuff and then come back in three or four months, whatever, do all this revising. And I said, no, I can't. You have to sign me. I don't care what the amount is, but I need to be under contract. And they were like sort of laughing, like, really? Is she for real? But they did it. I mean, it was a $7,500 advance, my first advance. And I did the book. And it, and then that book was a big success by the standards of a very small advance. You know, we sold every right and it sold to the movies. Of course, it didn't get made, but we sold to the movies. We I was it was selected as a like Reader's Digest condensed book in a book with John Grisham's The Client. So that condensed book sold like 5 million copies. I was just on his coattails. And then eventually we became friends, which was so fun to talk about later. But at the time, it was just so exciting. And so I then there was a bidding war for my next novel. That was how it got started. But my career has kind of been up and down. I've had that book was a big success. Bidding war for my second novel, which kind of tanked. So then I had to claw my way out of that hole for the third novel, which did really well. And then I, my fourth novel didn't do so well. And then I had Orphan Train. So it was just a sort of funny path. Were you comfortable calling yourself a professional writer from, from that first book? Or did it take a while before you actually said, yes, I'm, I'm now I'm a bona fide novelist? Boy, I mean, it's a different thing for me calling yourself an author or a novelist than calling yourself a writer, which is sort of like anyone can be a writer. But to be an author, you have to be published. And to be a novelist, in my view, you have to have more than one novel. I don't know. That's how just how it sounds to my ears. Um, so yeah, I always had trouble with that. I mean, part of it is how do you claim authority in the world? How do you, what kind of confidence do you have? And I never, I, I don't know. I, gosh, I, I think the question you would have to be lying on a therapist's couch, maybe to figure all these things out for yourself. And I haven't really done that on this, in this subject, but, or in any, to be honest, I, (laughs) I think that I have confidence in some ways and not in a lot of ways, but I think that's true for a lot of writers. And when I was waiting for my first reviews to come out, I was sick to my stomach. I mean, I've been through it so many times now. I don't even care. I don't even care. And also now with the internet, you get so many opinions about your work all the time that it's an entirely different process. But Back in the mid 90s, when I published my first novel, there was no internet, really. There was no Amazon. You couldn't, there was no Goodreads. You couldn't see what people thought of you way even in advance of publication. And now it's gotten to the extent that a friend of mine 
whose novel just came out, and she's a famous writer and publishes best-selling books. Her agent called two months before, two months before, to say, we've calculated that this book probably won't hit the list. How do they know? It, right. It's pre-orders. It's word of mouth. It's bookseller stuff. It's crazy that they have now calculations like that. And it's kind of terrifying for people who are trying to write books that aren't contingent on selling lots of copies. The good news is there are lots of ways to publish these days. And there are some very respectable ways to do it that don't involve this kind of mega big five, soon to be big four publisher world. I've heard stories of people who self-publish on Amazon or something, and the thing goes for some reason, goes viral, then all of a sudden the publishers say, okay, now we want to print it. That sometimes happens, but it's it's rare. Those are the unicorns. I mean, it will happen with romance. There are certain genres. There's a thriller writer. I don't, I don't want to get this wrong. I think it's Sarah Pekinen who started self-published and her book took off to such a huge extent. I, I may be wrong about who about the name of that author, that she became a mega, a mega published writer. That does sometimes happen. But another thing that happens is that I don't publish with Amazon, but if you publish with Amazon, if they really like your book, there are all their al algorithms that go come into play and you can have a kind of success digitally, meaning with eBooks in particular, especially, that is hard to replicate with other publishers. How do you get your ideas? You know, I've come to learn to trust a kind of tingle, a sort of spidey sense about topics. And I don't always know what it is about me that's responding a certain way to something until the book is well underway. And I've learned to trust that feeling, even if I don't exactly know why I feel the connection to the story. The other thing is, I have become more ambitious about my subject matter. So I'm taking on stories that are larger in scope. And to set a novel in 1840 to me seems crazy. I would never have done that even six years ago, probably, because it's such an, a different time period. And there's so many details and getting those details right. Writing about Australia, a country I don't live in, even England, I'm, I have dual citizenship. Uh, so I'm half English and I lived there for nine years, but uh, so I feel a little bit on safer ground with that. And I'm also part Irish. So with Orphan Train, I felt on safer ground as well. But a lot of things are just terrifying to to try. And um, I've learned that it's better to be terrified than to be complacent because your your work is more interesting. And it ultimately, I think it reaches more people and, and there's... You know, there's just more to enjoy in it. Well, on the, on the plus side about writing about the 19th century is there aren't a lot of people around today who remember it, so they can't say, wait, that's not accurate. Unfortunately, there are a ton of historians who care a great deal about what happened. And my next novel, the one I'm working on now, is set in the Civil War era North Carolina period. And that is very idiotic of me because Civil War buffs are obsessed and they know everything about the period. So I've really dug a hole for myself. True that they're not alive, the people who lived through it, but they're, it's amazing how many people care about the past in granular detail. So once you get that tingle, give us a general 
time frame of what it takes to go from the tingle to the research to the writing to the publication? You know, that tingle could happen way before I start even researching because it often happens when I'm working on the previous book. And so I've got, I'll sort of be, it's sort of like my affair. I have an affair with my new book and I have, I have my boring old relationship with my old book and I have to like play it out. The affair is always very exciting because it's so new and there's so much going on. And so, you have to meet in secret and steal time and all that. I throw ideas into a file in that period and I'm sort of it's sort of percolating in my mind. I'm dreaming about the title and things like that. Once the other book is done and I get to marry my new book, then I start researching. And and part of that is just gathering materials, contemporaneous materials, meaning for me, if I'm writing about the past materials from that time period, primary sources, not just secondary tertiary sources, and then reading biographies, reading histories, meeting people who are experts, interviewing people, reading other novels about the period or about the subject. So that's all really fun and interesting. And I even read esoteric academic books that are written in such jargon that it's hard to translate because oftentimes my the ideas, the big ideas are in those sources about colonialism and way women were treated and racism sort of an analysis of a cultural analysis of the time period in the present day, which I find very helpful in terms of how to approach the stories. Have you found that your research process has changed from when you started to now? That's a very good question. Well, I mean, in my earlier novels, I didn't research in this way, first of all. And second, I would say every year, the opportunities to research online expand. I belong to several academic listservs like academia.org, where I can subscribe to a subject matter and I get all of these incredible articles. And so, for example, when I was writing about the Aboriginal genocide, essentially, in Australia for my last novel, The Exiles, I went to this site and was able to find all of these articles about why and how and to what extent the Aboriginal people had autonomy, were subsumed by the British, were moved off their land, sent to these open-air concentration camps, and what eventually happened to them. And in a way, those are fresher even than contemporary histories that are written for the comment for the for, for ordinary readers, which I consider myself usually. These these cutting edge academic articles are super helpful, even though they only make the, their way into my novel peripherally. And then for me, going to places really matters and being in the places where my stories happened, even though, of course, the present day is quite different from the past, landscapes and sunsets and temperature and the foliage, animals, all of that stuff, those are all the same. Were you able to go to visit those places in the beginning, or is that just something that success has afforded you that luxury? Well, it was easy with Orphan Train because my in-laws essentially live in the place I was writing about. So I was I was doing family trip. I wouldn't have been able to go to Australia twice before if I had had not had a little bit of been able to put aside a little bit of money for travel for the books. But I and I also, frankly, I don't know if I would have been as ambitious as I was if I didn't know that I could go, because to me, that part of it is very important. Well, the other thing is, I don't know 
how you do it, because if I were researching something like that, I would get caught going down so many rabbit holes out of curiosity that I'd never be able to sit and start writing. How do you keep yourself on a focus on what you're writing about? Well, there are two answers that I have. One is that the rabbit holes are very important for a long, for a while because you discover things it going down those rabbit holes that you never would have known. And a lot of the fun details in the books are a result of these momentary, strange obsessions. Like I'll give you an example. In The Exiles, I had already written much of the book and certainly the book that takes place in the prison in Newgate Prison in London and the homes of the poor in London. When I stumbled on a detail that I discovered because I was reading about candles, about lighting, I had to figure out what light, there was some gas Gaslight that had a certain smell, but I also wanted to know how people really lit their lighted their homes. And so I discovered, and maybe this is common knowledge, but it wasn't to me, that in the homes of the poor and in prisons and in poor houses, they used a kind of tallow made from very cheap animal fat that melted quickly, had a very low melting point. Is it low or high? Which is it, when it melts quickly? I can't remember. So it puddled on the ground quickly. It smelled terrible. It smelled like the worst kind of rank animal smell you could imagine. So it was distinctive. And when people went into Newgate prison, I discovered reading, that's the value of reading contemporaneous accounts of people who lived through it. I discovered that that was a big thing that they had to put up with was the smell of these horrible burning candles. Of course, I had to go back and put in that detail. That was a great one that I wouldn't have discovered if I hadn't kind of had this. I was sort of like, I'm just going to follow this and see if I can find more about how houses were lighted and and where and what that was like to live through back then. And then the second answer is I right now for example, my June 1st is my firm deadline to start writing my new novel. I have little note, I have notes and I have hundreds of pages of research that I've been doing, but I have to start writing whether I'm finished with research or not. And what I also know is that once I start writing, other kinds of research will become necessary. You never stop researching. It's just that it changes from a kind of macro to a micro story. Like, for example, if I'm writing, I'm I'm just imagining, but if it's January in this particular area of North Carolina, is there ever snow on the ground? That's one thing I don't, I've not researched yet, but I won't do until I need to once I'm already writing. Now, when you said you have to start writing on June 1st, is that a self-made deadline or is that because your publishers are expecting you to get started on the 1st? My publishers have made the mistake of giving me a really far deadline for this novel. They said I can turn it in in 2023. I mean, I'm not a book a year person at all. I never have been. My novels come out every three or four years, but I know that I can have a draft of this novel by the end of next summer. And that's my goal. So I'm going to start in, uh, it's my deadline. I'm going to start. I want to, I don't, you know, I'm getting old. How many more books do I have in me? I need to, I have a two book contract. I need to like get on it here. Well, wait, how many, how many has James Patterson written? He's written like 2000 or something. Let's not compare me to James Patterson or speaking of John Grisham, when I was at John Grisham's house, he was kind enough to put me up for a weekend when I was doing events down there at the Virginia Festival of the Book. And, and he was like, come on, lazy girl, let's get going. I write two books a year. And I was like, John, you're a maniac. I'm never going to do that. It is a totally different thing. First of all, he's completely brilliant. 
in a very specific, amazing way as a writer. And second, he uh, he basically got his editor to be his agent. So the agent edits everything first. And he has a whole wing of his publishing house dedicated to him. And his whole life is shaped around him writing books. And he loves it more than absolutely everything else. And I don't love it more than everything else. I actually find writing really hard. I love the world of books. I could read till the cows come home. I love being friends with other writers. I love the literary life. I love reading about books. I love reading about ideas. I love the research. I like the writing sometimes. I really like editing my own work sometimes. It's a job. It's hard. I have to make myself sit down. Like Dorothy Parker said, I hate writing. I love having written. That is exactly true. I love having written. And so that high of having finished for the day is wonderful. And I have very specific goals. I write longhand and I write fairly small on college ruled paper and with a very specific pen. I have to write four pages a day. And sometimes it's like exercise. Like if I do two pages one day, then I have to have six the next or whatever. So it's like 20 pages a week, five days a week. It's not that I'm not setting myself the world's worst goal, but I have to set a goal or I just won't do it. There's more to my conversation with Christina Baker-Klein on the next Life Slices, including more on her writing process and what it's like to have three of her books in development as movies and TV shows. Join us. If you enjoyed this program, please subscribe and like us on social media and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Life Slices is produced by Beat Dick Ravens Productions, all rights reserved. Music courtesy of Fesleyan Studios. 